The Murti Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're delighted and honored to have each of you participating in today's teleconference on H-1B RFEs or requests for evidence. Uh, As usual, I'm acting as the moderator, and I have on this panel two of my esteemed brilliant colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Timothy Sachet, or TJ as we call him affectionately around (laughs) here, and Kevin Andrews, who is the coordinator for the non-immigrant team and another one of our incredible team here that can particularly that has been focusing on the H-1B or non-immigrant department issues at the Murthy Law Firm. Uh, Today we're going to discuss trends with RFEs. We're seeing USCIS processing, uh, they've started processing the H-1B cap cases that they received this year in April of 2019. Unfortunately, RFE issuances remain at historically high levels over the past year or two. And uh, we've seen since February 28th of 2018, the USCIS issued a policy memo on H-1B third-party placement work, which was a little bit more of a red flag. So I know when we're talking about the historically high levels of H-1 RFEs, um, the overall denial rate that we have been monitoring and trends that has been released, I believe, by the USCIS is that Back in 2015, just four years ago, the overall denial for H-1s was just 5%. Believe it or not, Ripley's believe it or not, in 2018, it jumped 400% to 20% overall denials. And now, in this year, in 2019, it's overall 32%. And we were talking about the RFE rate, it's probably like 80% overall with consulting companies and IT companies, and if your employees are Indian nationals, which is like majority of the nationals applying because of the high technology skills of people from India, guess what? Those RFEs are closer to 80% or somewhere in that range. Is that what you said, Kevin? Okay, so today we're gonna focus on four major topics. One, right to control. Two, specialty occupation. Three, beneficiaries qualifications. And four, maintenance of status because these are the standard templates. The USCIS is hitting that button and saying, show me the specialty, lack of, uh, that there's a specialty occupation. Show me and employees maintaining status. So with that, let me get started. Kevin, let me have you discuss the right to control. Thanks, Sheila. So right to control is not a new issue. It's something that's been um, uh, an issue that we've had to deal with since at least 2010. But right to control since the February 22nd policy memo in 2018 has made it um, much more than an onerous task, but is actually determining the uh, outcome on the cases. So I think this is a large reason for that exponential increase in just three years from a five or six percent denial rate to a 32 percent denial rate across the board. So we're mainly the the point of right to control is usually triggered when it's uh, working at a third party location and or IT work. So we're even seeing the request for right to control evidence if it's 
in-house work for a company that's traditionally involved in providing IT services. So in order to have a chance at really, or maximizing the chances of getting an approval in this current environment, there's really three pieces of evidence for every entity that's involved that's gonna be required to be able to get an approval. And that's gonna be a letter from the client, letter from the vendor, a contract, and a purchase order with a specific duration. And this, uh, getting all three pieces of evidence can be sometimes, in a lot of cases, very challenging to get. And when it comes to the uh, duration portion, the shocking thing that we're seeing, a trend that's really picking up in intensity is that USCIS is limiting the duration of the petition if they even approve it. If it's one of those uh, two out of three that are still getting approved, they're limiting the duration of the petition to match the current statement of work or purchase order, even if there's a history of constant renewal over three or six or whatever years, USCIS is limiting the approval to that uh, duration, which is creating a lot of problems and a lot of uncertainty, which I think is the ultimate goal of the administration um, for anyone who's participating. And one of the things that I know that the IT serve lawsuit, part of it is to try and challenge and question the USCIS's legality in shorter term approval notices, which actually appears to violate the law and the regulations because no one, I don't know what I'm going to do for the next three years. I'm sure nobody here knows what you're going to do six months from today, which case you're working, which project for which client. If the, you as a company come to a multi law firm, we process your case. How would we know? And to expect something miraculous or different from consulting companies is really looking at it backwards. The nature of that business is, you know, six months at a time. Exactly. Yeah, and so USCIS should consider industry standard. The, the thing with that, well, old U at Legacy USCIS <laughs> has to consider industry standard, but this February 22nd memo says um, if there's no specific duration, then anything that you provide is, quote, speculative and non-specific. Mm -hmm. But like to what to your, both of your points, I mean, I, I, I don't know exactly what client I'm going to be working with tomorrow or in six months from now. Um, so that's speculative and non-specific in, in the same sense. So yeah, you're right, it's definitely a different standard that the administration is holding the, the people in this particular And I think the lawsuit model. makes it a point saying if, if the salaries are short, if the H-1B prevailing wage is being paid by the H-1B employer for the H-1B employee, then that was the reason they said that no benching and no, the whole reason was that they didn't want employers to say, oh, I don't have a project, so I'm not gonna pay you your salary. But if the salary is being paid, no one can is supposed to question it, and I think I'm so glad that there are organizations and employers willing to sue and challenge the government because in this climate, if you do not challenge the government or sue for your rights, they are going to eat all of us alive. Uh, uh, TJ, you wanted to say something about the FDNS? Sure. So, so FDNS now is, is actually checking with end clients before the H-1B petition is actually adjudicated. Now, in the past, they used to you know, do site visits and things like that after the approval, just to make sure everything is, is legit and is how it was presented in the H-1B petition. But now they're, they're doing this during the adjudication process, going to the end client, asking them certain facts about the employment, 
you know, I've seen cases where they say like, who's actually controlling this person's work? Who does he, does he or she report to? Um, and then sometimes they're, you know, potentially denying a case without even issuing an RFE. And, and, and in other kind times they are actually issuing an RFE. And I think Kevin, you may have had this once where they went to, uh, they went to the end client site and said, you have three days to, to give us a response or we're going to deny the case. And, and the end client was like, the manager is out for the next four days. Like, what am I supposed to do? So it's certainly something that, that we are seeing much more frequently. I wouldn't say it's a, a ton of cases right now where they're actually doing that or we're seeing it. We actually see it happen, right? Because if it, if it, hey, everything checks out, we don't even hear about it. Um, so it's certainly something to consider. I also see those, uh, come, you know, for like the lottery cases when it's consular processing, um, the FDNS has some kind of information they think is useful to, and this might be on an approved petition, because we're talking about before, mm -hmm. but uh, we're even seeing it on the approved petitions and then when they're applying, the, the uh, foreign national worker is applying for the visa, there's some, you know, hit in the system. So not only is FDNS actively investigating, but there does seem to be some measure of efficient cooperation and coordination within, you know, between State Department, mm -hmm. FDNS. And that's that's something because, you know, we kind of say, oh, like it, it, they're so slow and inefficient. USCIS is not inefficient. They are very efficient in coming out with policy. Like, look how many <laughs> policy memos they came out with in 2018. They, they're much more, they were just more efficient at coming out with policy in 2018 than adjudicating petitions. So that was mm -hmm. a choice to allocate their efficiency. So it, it, the, the government is not inept. They, they, to the extent that they are, it's because they choose to be. And, and I think, you know, with all the investigation and, and all the scrutiny, it's, it's really important to, you know, try and provide the best evidence that you can. And like Kevin was talking about, the, the three pieces of evidence for, you know, each layer in the contractual chain. And I really love, and I use it all the time, Kevin, your um, Jenga analogy, where, you know, a, a Jenga, you know, you can build that. The more of the three pieces you get of a Jenga, the, the stronger it is and the higher you can build. If you m remove one piece, hey, you can still build. You remove the, you know, the end client letter, you can still build, you can still get your approval. You remove two, and it's a little shaky. You can still get an approval, but it's, it's you know, less likely. Um, so I think it's, it's certainly very important to, the stronger, the, the more evidence, the more of those three pieces of evidence, the contract, the statement of work, and the letter from all parties to the contractual chain, the more of that you can get, I think that the stronger um, your case will be. Um, and, you know, Honestly, the, the, a chain is only um, as strong as its weakest link. So if it involves one or more vendors and you don't get something, any of the pieces for one of those layers, then you know, it's gonna be you know, very difficult to, to get that approval. You really, you really need to document each link of that chain. Um, and then also according to the, the, the recent memo, the February 2018 memo, the more layers there are, the more difficult it is going to be to to get that approval. If you have four vendors between the petitioner and the end client, that's going to make a, a much more difficult case. You know, it's what the memo says is if it's attenuated by vendors. So I think even one vendor is going to be treated with a different level of scrutiny. I think the four, yeah, if yeah. it's that many layers in your cake, that's going to you know be an even higher level of scrutiny. But the threshold from you know lower scrutiny to higher scrutiny is whether there's a vendor involved. Because if it's direct, uh, what, the, what the memo calls is petitioner-client relationship, yeah. Or, or that direct client relationship, um, you know, they, they think that is more, they, what they say in the memo is that's more credible. It's not, it's mm -hmm. more credible than, than saying, I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who's got a project. Um, so we're definitely seeing that if your Jenga tower is only that 
you know, two layers thick, yeah. it, the structural integrity of that, it, the center of gravity is low enough that it's going to be difficult to collapse it. So maybe just a letter and a purchase order, or maybe just a contract and a letter mm -hmm. or some combination. But the moment you add that vendor, USCIS says, oh, this is like a Ponzi scheme kind of a thing. And that's the level of scrutiny that you need to try and, you know, perception that you need to overcome in those cases. Yeah, I think overall what I say now, it, the most important thing, I know everything, each p link in the chain is, you know, only strong as your weakest link, mm -hmm. but contractual documentation from the end client is the absolute most important thing that I have seen in my experience. Yeah, well, and, and giving them contact information too, because, mm -hmm. and, and, to, and it's kind of like what you're talking about with FDNS, like, and we talk about this in the RFEs, we thought, hey, you can call so-and-so at, you know, the end client, and, yeah. and his or her name is this, and their contact number is this, and this is their phone number, and you know, just, just to um, uh, give that opportunity and try to make it as easy as possible for the adjudicator to confirm that this is a legit project. So I guess it's a great discussion that all of us are having, you know, as attorneys trying to help our employer clients um, that are on the phone call today. But from a practical point of view, many of them struggle. They struggle to get those documents. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's like pulling teeth out of a child. Mm -hmm. And the and clients, many of them say, we're in the business of subcontracting this work because we don't want to be dealing with a bunch of governmental agencies and jumping through hoops. That's why we hire you guys to do it. And so it's I, we understand the practical considerations, but I think what both Kevin, TJ, and myself have been talking about is the practical problem of trying to get the approval. And the fewer pieces of evidence that we have, the more challenging ultimately it's going to be for us to get this approval. Mm -hmm. Next, let's jump to the specialty occupation issue. Uh, we know that before, <laughs> clearly, doctor, engineer, lawyer, clear specialty occupation, th those are the words in the regulation, but mm -hmm. not today. Today we're getting RFEs on everything. Um, even if you say the job is an engineering position or a math-related position or physics, they're like, guess what? That's too broad. That's not a specialty occupation because it's not a specific field of study. And that's what we're seeing in the RFEs. So what kind of queries are they issuing, TJ? Sure. So I think lots of what we're seeing is, you know, again, a specialty occupation is a position that requires a, a, at least a bachelor's degree in a specific field of study. And I think that is the key word, a specific field of study. So what we're seeing lots of times is, is a couple of things. One, they're saying that the job duties you provided are too generic and too broad. Even if they're not, you can submit six pages of job duties with many subpoints, and they're going to hit their template RFE button these job duties are too generic. We really can't tell what the position is. Um, and, and another thing that we're seeing is, you know, you really do need to clarify the, the specific field of study that you are requiring for the position. So we're seeing things like if you list just engineering as a requirement or math or the, the new one that we're seeing is business. USC is saying that these are broad fields of study with, with many subcategories. You know, there's different fields of business. There's, you know, agricultural engineering and computer engineering. This could, you know, two completely different fields of study. So they're saying, well, if you just say engineering, that actually means that this position could require, a, you know, a bachelor's degree. It could be performed with a bachelor's degree in, in multiple fields of study. So that's, you know, uh, uh, you know, especially the business one and the engineering one are, are recent trends. Business was awful. Even 20 years ago, mm -hmm. I remember, for business, they would be like, oh, MBA, business, strategy, marketing, finance, mm -hmm. that's every single business in the world. That's not a specialty occupation business. Mm -hmm. But this about the engineering and the math, yeah. those are newer. I, I used to see it where like it's a bit clear business position. You put business, you'd be okay. Now you can't do that. It's got to be either you know, you know finance or, or something like that. Um, and we're certainly seeing that 
come up a lot. I would also say for you know people listening, employers listening, maybe there are employers that do a lot of green card cases and then they work in the green card context and then come work in the H-1B context <laughs> to keep people here. And in the green card world, and, you know, it's just it's so counterintuitive, but in the green card world, in a lot of ways, the, the rules and the regulations in the Trump era are a lot uh, easier to deal with than the rules and the regulations in the H-1B world, you know, and, and it's, you look at it, it's like, okay, well, H-1B is just how I'm able to work now and green card's how I'm able to work in the future, but the rules are so different. So like a big example that comes up, I do a green card case that says for an IT job that has a field of study that says engineering any is accepted, that probably would be okay for that I-140 for that green card case, but to list engineering any in the H-1B context would be sabotaged because there are different requirements actually. H-1B specific special, uh, specialty occupations like what TJ said, but a green the definition of a EB-2 or an EB-3 job is, a, is much more broad than that. And I think you know the main problem that USCIS in the Trump administration poses when it comes to specialty occupation is that this is their catch-all um, reason for a lot of policy. Uh, wage level stuff has been a policy thing that's come up since 17 and um, right to control and sometimes it'll be laid out very specifically about wage level or right to control but more often it's just generic specialty occupation. Oh this job doesn't meet these four criteria and and really I think what all this stems from is the president's executive order where you know there's a policy that says make sure the uh, buy American hire American executive order which says make sure all of the H-1Bs are awarded to the highest paid and quote most skilled workers, highest paid and most skilled. So that's establishing a, a, a competitive threshold. But the law says that a, a H-1B job is a job that requires at least a degree in a specific specialty, a minimum criteria. So USCIS is now, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the administration is creating an executive order to turn what was a minimum eligibility program into this Hunger Games competition, right? And so when USCIS says, oh, this isn't a specialty occupation when it's been that way for years, I think really what they're saying is, why aren't you making America great again? Why isn't the wage level higher? Why isn't this the most, uh, the highest paid? Because our, our, our president gave us this, this mandate, this executive order to give preferential treatment to those cases. I'm not saying this is right. Again, this is the difference like Sheila was talking about, about wanting to be a petitioner and wanting to be a plaintiff. But this is the current environment right now, and I think that's how we have to approach specialty occupation. So my focus is, um, you know, what are the minimum requirements? Are you strategically establishing those minimum requirements to maximize the wage level since USCIS attaches great meaning to wage level now more than ever before? And, um, you know, do the job duties clearly? You can't just pick software developer because that's the one you know, you know that they like and then list a bunch of computer systems analyst job duties. The job duties need to be clearly aligned with and have a nexus to the occupation that's being chosen. And the ONET, um, onetonline.org, www.onetonline.org, is the Google of occupations. So really use the ONET to make sure there is a clear nexus between the job duties that's being listed and the SOC code that's being selected. Okay, so now that we've discussed it fairly great length, the specialty occupation issue, let's jump to choosing the right wage level, which all of you have been seeing the attacks on wage level one, and mm -hmm. Kevin already jumped 
a little bit ahead where he talked about how the Baja, the Buy American, Higher American Executive Order of April 2017, really sort of suggests that the, where Trump is asking people to ensure or suggest reforms that H-1Bs are afforded are awarded to the most highly skilled mm -hmm. or the highest paid petition beneficiaries. And as Kevin and we've been discussing, all of this requirements under Baja is totally illegal because it violates <laughs> the statute, the law, the regulations. And so do we want to challenge or do we want to just accept whatever the government says, here, we'll give you, you know, half a piece of bread for the day. That's your meal for the day. And you know you need two slices of bread just to be alive. And this is what's going on on a daily basis. Um, and as we said, spoke earlier, if you challenge them, you'll probably win because courts at least... The, the separation of powers seems to be working pretty well because most courts tend to say, hey, and they s slap the wrist of the president um, and the administration. Uh, but now we're seeing even level one isn't enough, TJ. What's going on? Sure. So, I mean, it kind of going with what, you know, Kevin's discussion of the, the buy American, hire American is, you know, the higher wage level, that the higher the chance that you get an approval. So I guess it was two cap seasons ago, we started seeing an issue where <clears throat> USCIS was questioning if you had the LCA certified as a level one position, USCIS was questioning either one of two things. They're saying, oh, these job duties are way too complex to be entry level, i.e. level one. So therefore, your LCA is all wrong. Or they're saying, yeah, yeah, level one, the job duties work, but this position can't be a it can't be a specialty occupation. It cannot be a position that requires a bachelor's degree in a specific field of study um, by virtue of the fact that you certify the case as a, as a level one, which is absolutely ridiculous because the entry level position like for level one is a bachelor's can't degree. Be a, right, right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you know we saw that frequently, and I think a lot of people went away from actually filing cases as level one, even the L L level one cases that we are filing now. You're more likely, I would say, and you know, it's a, you guys can correct me if you have different experiences, you're probably more likely to get an RFE, but they're not going to specifically mention level one because I think they probably got slapped down about that a little too much. They're just going to generically question whether the position itself is So now they're asking level two and level three RFEs? They're, they're not, you know, at this point, they're not really questioning, I mean, get this a little bit later, questioning level, you know, two and three and whether that's properly certified necessarily. But when, when you do file a case as a level one, they're not actually jumping out anymore and saying, ha, level one, it can't be a specialty or the job is too complex. They're just saying, this is not a specialty occupation in general without even mentioning level one. I think they probably got slapped down a little bit with that. Right? Uh, especially a lot of professors, tenure track faculty members, and starting level one professor you know, yeah, any that doesn't right, doctors and lawyers. Mm -hmm. Like we were getting RFEs saying, how is this entry level, you know, uh, intellectual property lawyer or CEO? Mm -hmm. You know, because it was just the minimum requirements for the CEO corresponded to the, the the wage level corresponds to the minimum requirements for the position. And if it's a professional position like CEO or doctor, you know, requiring a professional degree and like five or six years of experience would be entry level for mm -hmm. that type of occupation. So it's just entry level for, for high, higher level type of jobs means something different. And that's the reason why there are job zones in the DOL's uh, calculus here. But I think something else that I've seen trending, not so much in the cap case RFEs yet, but in the RFEs leading up to, is you know definitely level two is kind of like the new level one. We get every now and again get, how is this job, um, you know, uh, what is it, routine? Moderately and, complex. Uh, moderately complex, thank you. Uh, just using the same definitional language that's in the DOL prevailing wage guidance that defines level one, two, three, four, 
and, and something that maybe we're kind of seeing, well, not maybe, we have seen in a couple of cases, but not enough to know that it's definitely a trend. For the cap cases, we've seen a couple that says, well, how did you arrive at this wage level? And that's a, that, that's a variation mm -hmm. on, 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 the, on the old argument. How did you arrive at the wage level might be a challenge that can be on any of them, one, two, three, four. And you know we were kind of brainstorming, like, should this discussion be limited to s giving them an, a, a, an instruction on how the DOL <laughs> prevailing wage guidance works? Or does it mean something more like, do we have to argue what the company's business necessity is for establishing this minimum requirement? So uh, th that may be a new issue, but um, again, the, the RFEs are still coming in. We, you know, got the, it was it was receipts. I don't think we've received any rejections yet, yeah. but RFEs and even some adjudications. So far, the RFEs that we've gotten are so far. I, I've looked at most of them. It's plain vanilla specialty occupation, mm -hmm. plain vanilla right to control, or not plain vanilla, but post twenty seventeen plain yeah. vanilla. And um, so, but not very many new like novel things like we would expect from all that policy guidance that came out last year. Okay, so now we've talked about right to control. We've talked about specialty occupation. Third item is the beneficiaries' qualifications, and we've been seeing the USCIS applying a higher scrutiny to cases where the H-1B employee or beneficiary, in particular, is using a combination of both the education and experience to qualify for the position. So, Especially if it's an IT job. Especially mm -hmm. in the IT mm -hmm. industry. Um, and so the expert opinions, uh, our letters are now being submitted, which again, they're now examining those, mm -hmm. but to, to explain with compelling uh, letters to describe the employee's recognition of expertise working in a progressively responsible role, uh, whereas before we would list the experience, now that's clearly not enough anymore. Um, and so this is another troubling issue that they're going after, not as, as aggressively as they are with the whole right to control and specialty occupation, but the qualification of the beneficiary is certainly under considerable scrutiny. Did either one of you want to add anything? And, and I think it just goes to the buy American, high American, and the highest paid, highest skilled. So most they qualified, want most yeah. qualified. They want those with the, not with just you, you, have, you have an associate's degree or you don't have any degree in like seven years of experience. No, they want those with master's degrees and, and well, bachelor's in community commerce or an MBA, uh, yeah. but I have 12 years of experience. And you know, the, the, the crazy thing about that is there are folks here who've gotten experience evaluations and have worked and you know, 2016 was their last approval, and now they're saying, here's my experience evaluation that's yeah. worked for the last 10, you know, whatever, as many years, and we're saying now, oh, this might not be good enough. And they're like, what do you mean? It's, it's always worked with USCIS. Yeah. But like Sheila was saying, the, the quality, they're looking at the quality of the experience letters. I tell my clients that they're really not experience letters that they're asking for, they're asking for uh, stories. Um, and you know, I, I always use me as an example because I know me better than anyone else. Like, if I went to Sheila and say, "Hey, I need an experience letter that says," um, or "I need an experience letter," and she gave me a letter that says, "You know, attorney coordinator working at uh, firm since 2007, manages the department. Here's your salary. Boom, that's it. That's not going to help. It needs to tell a story. It needs to say, "Oh, Kevin started here when he didn't know anything in 2007 as a law clerk, and then he went and worked his way through school, and then he got promoted to being attorney after passing the bar, and then he." did this thing, it was a junior attorney, and then and then promotion, and, and his salary went from this to this to this. It needs to tell this story, mm -hmm. and good luck getting a story like that from old employers from like five years ago. Yeah. And if the only employer willing to tell this story is the sponsoring employer, 
it's as good as you know me being able to get a letter from my mom saying that she's the best lawyer. I'm the best lawyer that she knows because she's definitely willing to give me that. But it's self-serving <laughs> testimony, right? <laughs> okay. So besides the qualifications, next the hot topic, of course, is the whole issue of maintenance of status. Mm -hmm. Big, big deal. Of course, there was that fairly recent lawsuit that's uh, on which there's a stay where several universities and institutions of higher education sued the USCIS. Uh, and as I said before, that's the only way for the USCIS or the administration to back off. Uh, so what's going on, especially this is regarding F1 students and sure, F1 yeah. issues? So, so, so thankfully there's a stay on, on the unlawful mm -hmm. presence memo for now. Um, I, I think there, there are, you know, when you're, especially when you're an H-1B or an F-1 and, and filing a, a change of status under the H-1B cap to, to H-1B, there are a lot of questions if you're on um, using CPT um, and especially when you're on STEM OPT when working at a third party location. And when the memo was first put in, pla put in place about unlawful presence, it was really concerning to a lot of people because if you did something improperly that you didn't even know about, you know, your, your DSO authorized your, your CPT a year and a half ago, well, UCS was saying, well, you accrue unlawful presence starting at that violation. So that was certainly very concerning. So it's, you know, very, you know, hopeful that that stay will remain in place. Um, caused a lot of people to change how they file their cap cases oh, yeah. this year. Yeah. You know, a lot of people decided, I'm not going to ask for a change of status. I'm going to file for consular processing or or whatever. Just had to d make that hard decision because they've been doing CPT that's been authorized. Yeah. Yeah. No, there are a lot of cases filed consular processing mm -hmm. for that very reason. Not that they did anything wrong. But that USCIS may contend that they did, um, and there, and we're also seeing uh, much more scrutiny if you're on STEM OPT, which is for training. Because a little, you know, you're you gotta have a training plan with your employer when you're actually at a third party location. So kind of like in the in the right to control context, um, they're kind of questioning how can your employer be training you if you are at a third party site. Um, so that's something certainly to be on the lookout for, and, and then just just using CPT in general. I think USCIS lots of times suspects that, that students are just going to school, getting first semester CPT and doing it just to get work authorization. I mean, they've been here for 15 years and just constantly a CPT student. Um, and so they are highly scrutinizing those cases. Um, and you know, sometimes you try and argue, hey, the, 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 the um, students um, DSO actually authorized the CPT um, and got the I-20 signed by the DSO. But lots of times USCIS still doesn't accept that as a valid argument. And, and would deny the change of status request on that basis. So, Mike, I get clients that are very, very frustrated about this. Like, for that reason, like D the DSO authorized it. The DSO is authorized by the United States federal government to give this to me. Why am I being punished now for this? Because I, I, I complied with all the, I checked all the boxes, I jumped through all the hoops. And this situation is very much analogous to the, um, the mortgage crisis of 2008. In, in the mortgage crisis of 2008, there were homeowners who uh, were allowed to take out loans because banks enabled them. And the reason why the banks enabled them is because the government facilitated these, this, this cheap credit. And when the system started to fail, it wasn't the government that got in trouble for sure. It wasn't the banks who authorized and gave this benefit to the homeowners. It was the homeowners who were punished mm -hmm. for the most part. And it's a similar situation here where there is the United States government that authorizes uh, 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 these um, academic, not financial, academic institutions to provide this, this benefit. And there's an incentive because what do the academic institutions get as a result of providing this benefit? Tuition. So it's all, always back to money, right? 
And if a school is getting tuition money to, and you know, one of the main you know drives and focus, understandably, is to be able to not just go to school but to work in the United States. And here's a path that enables me to do that while I'm still in school. Um, and I hear everybody else is doing it, just like in 2008, I'm probably going to take out that loan. And it's just bad policy, and it's 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 just ter it creates a lot of uncertainty. Um, it, you know, in the market, and these people are definitely knowledge workers that we need to be creating. And I remember the old Republican story of like we should attach a staple of green card to the degree. It was like Mitt Romney, <laughs> I think, that said that. So definitely, the ideologies change in a short period of time. But um, this is something that's very frustrating to our clients, and it's like this is a pattern of abuse that that you can see in other in, in other areas. Um, but to try and overcome this, because it's still overcomable, yeah. And mm -hmm. especially with the stay in the lawsuit. You are do, you've done CPT, you get the RFE asking about it. Um, it. It really is just laying out like the DSO authorized it. Here's my I-20. The, 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 the employer followed all the uh, requirements. Here's the cooperation agreement between the school and the employer. Um, here's the evidence that uh, from the school, and the school should be able to prepare this for you, that you know it's something that's integral to the program, that it was required to do immediate participation in CPT. So. Um, it, it can potentially work, but um, as people probably know, there are some universities that have a more liberal use of CPT than mm -hmm. others. And if a student has can find on the internet which one of those schools has easy access, it means USCIS can also mm -hmm. find on the internet yeah. which are those same schools. So you will see the same level of scrutiny on particular schools is because the government knows as much as the students do which ones are the, the so to speak, magnets for this kind of thing. Okay, so we talked a little bit then about the types of documents you can provide in the RFE, uh, right? Yeah, and yep. we kind of alluded to it. We danced around a little bit. Did we hit all the points? The co-op, the employer co-op agreement, the um, evidence from the school that the CPT is an integral uh, part to study and are receiving academic credit, that the DSO was uh, the, was authorized by the DSO, which we talked about prior to starting the employment. Or any other academic work completed for the CPT, and 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 again, providing everything still doesn't seem to guarantee that mm -hmm. you would get the approval like in the olden days. Sure. Uh, olden days being a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. All schools are not good old days. Yeah. All schools are not treated uh, treated equally here. Yeah, no, sure. I, I like to say if you go to Harvard, the, the level of scrutiny is probably a little bit less than if you go to some of these other schools that you can. But go the to. likelihood that you'll get CPT in the first year is probably also, also not less. as yeah. easy, probably, which is why. Harvard has, you know, if, if that's, I don't know if that's a good example or not, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Okay, so what are the other issues that we need to touch upon? So another thing to, to be aware of is it comes up, especially when you're changing status from F1 to H1B, when you were on OPT or STEM OPT, you need, you need to show that um, the the work that you're doing on your OPT or your STEM OPT is actually related to your degree. So then, but let's say you have I think a good example would be you're on OPT with a business degree and you're applying for an H-1B and for the exact same job. You're going to continue in the same job and, and, and your employer is filing H-1B for you. And it's, a, it's an IT position. It's a software developer position. Well, then you've got a, a little issue there because clearly, as we talked about in the special occupation section, a business degree is really not going to qualify you for a software developer position. So that tends to indicate that potentially you're in violation of your F1 status by you know, engaging in work that is not related to your degree. 
So it, when, when you're filing for that H-1B position, if you're, it's the same position, but you need to get an education and experience evaluation, there could be some concerns about whether the, the, um, the F-1 status was, was maintained and you were properly engaged in employment while on OPT or STEM OPT. Okay. Uh, did you want to add something to it, uh, Kevin, or um, I think we touched upon most of these issues? Yeah, I, I think the main okay. thing to just tie up with the whole maintenance of status thing here is just a, a reminder that when we file these H-1B petitions and we're asking for status, we are asking for two immigration benefits. We're asking for the H-1B classification, and that's you know specialty occupation, right to control, beneficiary qualification, like we've been talking about. But then we're also asking for status, which is the I-94 card, which, and the only relevant inquiry there is whether this individual has been maintaining status to be eligible to get the change of status approved. So, you know, were you maintaining status in F1, and that's where all the issue uh, discussion you were just mentioning. Um, yep, so exactly. as a mm-hmm. And so as a strategic matter, uh, if you can get an H-1B petition approved, but the change of status part could be denied. So you take that H-1B petition approval, take it to uh, apply for a visa, and if you get the visa uh, abroad, and if you get the visa, you're able to be readmitted in H-1B status. So instead of getting the I-94 card automatically, you'd have to kind of take a scenic route of getting a visa and then getting it, the I-94 upon I don't know, I wouldn't call it scenic route. <laughs> the consulate's yeah. constantly yeah. denying it and people feeling stressed and the cost sure. of the airline yeah. ticket. And scenic, it means long. It's a euphemism for long, but yeah. yes, I but agree with you that. Have, and you have a spouse and children, and you have to buy five or six, four or five tickets on a you know, on an income on which you're spending a lot of money for Absolutely. your immigration mm-hmm. processing. It's very, very stressful. And so, like people are saying in the end, if you don't get the change of status approval, you travel abroad, you get the visa, you come back, you get the fresh I-94 online, I-94, at the port of entry and try to get back onto valid H-1B status. And it's even higher stakes now than that because of this CPT and OPT thing that you got, we were just discussing. Because what if USCIS makes a finding that your use of CPT was a violation? That means, or, or that your OPT was, you know, your STEM OPT wasn't, you weren't being controlled enough or whatever. Uh, that means then that if you had any OPT available left after that, it's, it's gone and you are unlawfully present in the United States starting with the date of that decision. So this tends to be, like we were talking about earlier with the cap cases this year, this was a strategic decision that everyone on CPT or STEM OPT at a third party location had to make of do I follow through and ask for the change of status? Um, and, and we're getting this now with the cases being with RFEs that if they're withdrawn, uh, or I'm sorry, if there's an RFE, should we respond to the RFE with all the CPT stuff or the OPT stuff? Or should we withdraw our request for change of status and just get, take the approval and go abroad to apply for the visa? There's no clear answer to that question. It's mm-hmm. definitely a case-by-case talk to an attorney about, about it. But it's a new strategic option that uh, we never had to think about before. So it's not a good thing. It's a bad, <laughs> it's a bad thing. Sure, sure. Okay, I know we always try to wrap up these discussions uh, between 30 to 40 minutes or so on average, and we're kind of, I think, close to the 35, 40 minute mark. So we'll just touch upon the last few issues very, very briefly. Uh, when you're responding to any of these RFEs, whether it's you directly as the employer, the HR, or through your company attorneys, or preferably you're using the most amazing, terrific, best law firm in the world, the multi-law firm. Uh, remember to point out to the government that it is a preponderance of the evidence. It's a civil case. It's not a criminal case with beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump keeps jumping around all the time saying, case closed, place proven. It's not a criminal case. Sorry, you're not proven innocent until you're, it's not criminal matter. It's not a quasi-criminal matter where there's a um, uh, automatic 
more likely uh, that, that this is a pure civil matter where it's a more likely than not, which is only a 51% uh, chance that your case should get approved, and hence the USCIS needs to approve it. Uh, TJ. Sure, I mean, but USC, USCIS shouldn't be just, you know, dismissing evidence or, or denying a case without specifically explaining why that evidence that you have provided is not sufficient. Um, but you, you do see this frequently, or especially in, in, in an RFE, and we talked about this a little bit before. They say your job duties are generic, even though you provided 18 pages of detailed job duties. Um, so that we're still seeing that happening. And I think USCS needs to understand that, that testimony from the petitioner is, is considered under penalty of perjury by fi- signing the Form I-129 for the H-1B petition. So that should be you know, considered evidence. But we're seeing frequently saying, oh, you say this, but prove it. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. And then there's just time frames, uh, Kevin. Yeah, just, um, just as a reminder, with RFEs, uh, it takes, if you have up to 87 days usually to respond to the RFE. USCIS can issue a notice of intent to deny if they think they have some specific derogatory information, which would limit the response to only 30 days to respond. So uh, just keep those time frames in mind because, you know, this is definitely RFE season. I, uh, we're, we're, we're starting to see the flurry of cap case RFEs come in. Being mindful of these time frames is important uh, if you are, you know, having a staff of quite a few because you're probably, like I said, we've received more in the last two years than in several years before that combined and definitely expect that trend to continue this year, unfortunately. And what are the time frames, uh, TJ, for students in CapGap? Sure, so a student who is in CapGap who, whose H-1B petition is denied or withdrawn uh, prior to October 1st and should get um, gets a 60-day grace period to depart the country, file another change of status to a different, you know, H-4 or something like that. Unless, it is, unless of course, the kind of like we talked about before, there was a finding that the student violated their status, and in which case he or she would, would be required to leave the country. Okay. So I know because we are trying to be mindful of time and wrap this up on time, uh, we've we all can agree unanimously on this panel with TJ, Kevin, and myself that the scrutiny with H-1B petitions, as each of you on the phone, obviously on this conference call, is very well aware, continues to be a USCIS priority, uh, especially with IT consulting companies that are working with the employer, vendor, client, AVC model. We have been seeing investigations and site visits have been on the rise. Internal compliance is very, very important for you all as employers to maintain your I-9, your paperwork, your documentation. And we're seeing a lot of these um, site visits and questions where and clients are being called before the approval, Mm -hmm. unlike before where they would approve the case and then issue it afterwards. So on behalf of Kevin Andrews, TJ, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy law firm, we want to thank you for joining us today. We hope that you won't have an RFE, but if you do, <laughs> that you will work with uh, the incredible legal team at the Murthy Law Firm. And we look forward to continuing to help you and support you and monitor and explain changes and educate you as you deal with the ever-changing landscape. Thank you for joining us and have a good afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.